Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Friday, January 19th. The war in the Middle East is now 105 years old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And welcome back to the FTD Morning Brief. There is a lot of bad news out there. We cannot change that here at FTD, but we can try to help you by giving you the best digest of all the news we read. That's all we aim to do here three times a week at the FTD Morning Brief. So thanks for tuning in. This morning, I'll be joined by Frank McKenzie, the former commander of U.S. Central Command. You'll recall that CENCOM is the command dealing with all with the Houthis and the broader challenges of the Middle East, all that stuff that's going on right now in the Persian Gulf, Red Sea. General McKenzie had a remarkable career in the U.S. military with multiple combat deployments. His tenure at CENCOM ended recently in 2022. We will speak to him shortly. At FDD, we don't pick winners in the rough and tumble arena of Israeli politics. It's the easiest way to walk away with a black eye or a bloody nose. But I do think it's important to weigh in on some recent statements made by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Bibi, as he's known, came out rather strongly against the U.S. position yesterday, stating that Israel must retain control over the security situation in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and he vowed that Israel will not return to the old Oslo paradigm of the two-state solution. There will undoubtedly be some who say that Bibi was out of line, that he took a direct swipe at the Biden administration's position, and the Biden administration has been remarkably supportive of the Israeli war in Gaza, maybe not everything else, but certainly the Israeli war in Gaza in uh, the aftermath of 10-7. And that is to say nothing of the message, of course, that he sent to the Palestinians who now have to choose between Hamas and a different future. But here's the thing. Oslo failed. The two-state solution failed, or at least the two-state solution as we knew it. BB knows it, and so does the majority of the Israeli public. Oslo led inexorably to where we are today. The two-state paradigm led to Israel handing over control of the disputed territories to the Palestinian Authority. That gave way to the Second Intifada, which was a disastrous era of suicide bombings and other acts of brutal violence in restaurants, malls, and nightclubs all across Israel. When the Intifada finally ended in 2005, the U.S. somehow convinced Israel to hand over Gaza to the Palestinian Authority. Well, two years later, Hamas took over the Gaza Strip by force in a civil war. Ever since then, Israel has known nothing but additional wars, 2008, 2012, 2014, 2021, and now this war in 2023, 2024. It's all terrible. So can you blame the Israelis for being skeptical of that old two-state paradigm? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that Israel should simply ignore Palestinian aspirations for a homeland, but I'm also not saying that the same old thing would work for the day after. Where is that old American ingenuity? How about that Israeli startup nation stuff? Can somebody please come up with something new here? I'm tired of returning to the paradigms that fail, but I'm also tired of watching these wars every few years. Okay, moving on. Now for your headlines. Headline one, a major IDF operation just uncovered 400 improvised explosive devices in the West Bank town of Tulkarim. Here's what we know. 
an estimated 1,000 IDF soldiers were operating in the West Bank town just on the border of central Israel. Soldiers found an insane number of IEDs. The good news is that they were found. The bad news is that they were in the West Bank in the first place. The Israeli media is now buzzing about the prospect of a third intifada. So what's my take? It's too soon to talk about a third intifada, but the temperature keeps rising in the West Bank. Some 2,000 arrests, more than 300 KIAs, raids every night. I definitely don't like where this is heading. I am personally keeping one eye on my calendar. March 11th is the start of Ramadan. That's usually when the wheels fall off that bus. Let's hope that doesn't happen here. Headline two, American cable giant CNN has reportedly cut off its relationship with Channel 12 in Israel. Why is this a major headline? I'm glad you asked. American media is in a death spiral. This is glaringly apparent as I monitor the news coming out of the Middle East. Our coverage here is simply vapid. And this stands in stark contrast to the incredibly sharp and granular reporting that I see coming out of Israel every day. Channel 12 is particularly good. It's not overly Zionist. In fact, it's often critical of Israel, but the reporters are getting scoops, real stories that matter in the region. So now what? I honestly don't know. I can't say exactly what prompted this split, but the way Israelis are reporting it, CNN didn't like the way Channel 12 covered aspects of this current war. As a guy who watches Israeli television several hours a day, I'll just say this, Channel 12 is as good as it gets for a channel like CNN. Good luck finding better coverage out of Israel. You're going to need it. And headline three, China says it's finally going to provide support to foreign enterprises under attack by the Houthis in the Red Sea. Here's the deal. The Chinese had been AWOL during this crisis so far in the Red Sea. Beijing had a role to play from day one, but for some reason it declined to step up. I mean, that was odd. I mean, the Houthis attacks prompted at least one Chinese shipping company, Costco, to take its deliveries on a more circuitous route that made it more expensive. I've said it before on the morning brief, and I'll say it again, China has not looked like an aspiring superpower during this crisis. If anything, it has looked like a JV team. So why is this a big story? I'll tell you why. Beijing has a strategic relationship with Tehran. It's an alliance with Iran, actually, and that regime stands behind all of the Houthi violence in the Red Sea and all the other violence, for that matter. This proxy war would all come to a screeching halt if Beijing just demanded it from its junior ally. Sadly, we're a far cry from the Cold War era, where the U.S. and the Soviet Union worked together to prevent escalation across the globe. Beijing's lack of leadership speaks volume rising superpower? Not even close. Okay, those are your headlines. I'm now pleased to welcome General Frank McKenzie. I had the honor of meeting him shortly after Israel joined CENTCOM in 2021. He is currently the Executive Director of the Global and National Security Institute at the University of South Florida. He also runs a center on cybersecurity at USF, and I am thrilled that he has joined us today. Welcome, General McKenzie. Jonathan, I'm glad to be with you this morning. All right. Well, let's dive right in. Thrilled that you're with us. How do you see the overall war being waged by Iran in the Middle East? Can Iran be contained? You've seen this up close for years. How do you how do you analyze this right now? So Iran remains wedded to what I would call their strategic concept is three things. Uh, and, and the first thing is preservation of the regime. Preservation of the theocratic regime remains the highest goal of all Iranian policy. 
The second goal is the destruction of the state of Israel. And the third goal is the ejection of the United States from the region. Now, objectives two and three might change order depending on the, the depending on the circumstances, but objective one remains. And the Iranians continue to pursue these objectives. So while they're happy about what's happening in Gaza, uh, you know, they're supportive of it. And obviously they're the moral author of what happened in Gaza. They're not going to go to war to support uh, to support uh, Hamas in Gaza. That's not going to happen. They're going to continue to support it with their proxies uh, and they're going to continue to provide what I would call back channel, hidden hand support to a very effective uh, proxy campaign by the Houthis in Yemen. And we can talk about that here in just a few minutes. But Iran has no interest right now in, in getting into a major war because they understand ultimately what would happen. They would be defeated. The regime would be under severe stress and might in fact collapse if that were to happen. So when we look at Iran and their activities in the region, we need to understand those strategic imperatives that drive Iranian action. Well, it sounds to me then, just off the cuff here, it sounds like, well, we need to be challenging the Iranian regime more directly if we want this to end, correct? Well, but there are steps that we can take that don't involve the possibility of theater war with Iran. We've belatedly begun to take action against the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, you know, one of our key national strategic objectives, according to our own national security strategy and our national defense strategy, is a preservation of these vital choke points on the global commons. So now we're beginning to take action with our coalition partners to ensure that that choke point stays open and that Houthi action doesn't go unpunished. We may be able yet, you know, to, to, to tear the Houthis from continuing these actions. There's still a lot of fighting to go ahead, to, to go forward in the in, down in the Red Sea in order to obtain that objective. But I believe we're doing the right thing, although perhaps a little late. So that's that's a step forward. Um, there are other things we can do to Iran across the region. You know, I would hesitate. Uh, to, to, to argue for an attack on metropolitan Iran. I just don't think that the circumstances warrant it. I don't think that's needed. We don't want a war with Iran. Iran doesn't want a war with us. But at the same time, we need to lower, uh, lower the deterrence uh, envelope, if you will, with Iran. So where their proxies are not attacking us in Iraq and Syria, we've begun to take some action there after a long period of absorbing blows repeatedly from their proxies. That, too, is a good sign. Look, Iran understands this language. They are rational actors, maybe not within the value system that you and I have, but they are rational. And as long as we understand that that highest priority is regime preservation, we actually have an opportunity to affect their thinking. All right, well, let's dig in a little bit. I mean, I, th I think that's all absolutely spot on. Let's talk a little bit more about that Houthi front. I mean, this has been uh, in the works now for years. I mean, you've been hearing about the Houthis from the Saudis and from the Emiratis and from others around the region. How do, how do we understand what's going on right now? Is this something that the U.S. can contain at the end of the day? I believe it is. Let me say, and this is an important point that I think is perhaps overlooked. I think the possibility of larger escalation from what we do in Yemen is very limited. I do not think Iran is going to ratchet up attacks massively across the theater because we're, we're striking the Houthis right now. This is a, a war on the cheap for them. They've waged it very effectively by shipping missiles and other, comp other lethal components into Yemen where the Houthis and they are very good engineers, have re-engineered and upgraded those weapon systems to be able to strike shipping in the Red Sea and the Bab el-Mandeb, but also, but also to strike into Saudi Arabia and into uh, UAE on occasion. And those strikes, while typically parried by both UAE and Saudi Arabia, have been very expensive and have sometimes been very embarrassing to both of those nations. They've also tried to strike Israel unsuccessfully. 
hard for them to get to Israel. Long way to go. A lot of warning systems in place to get there. A lot of very good defenses there. However, what is vulnerable, of course, is maritime shipping and the particularly unarmed maritime shipping in the Red Sea, the Bab el-Mendeb, and entering and exiting those straits. So that's where they've turned their efforts toward, and they're having some success. Now, why are they having success? Because they've built up a stockpile of these weapons that have shipped to them from Iran. How do we stop it? First of all, you got to cut off that shipment. We've seen efforts recently in the, in the interdiction role to try to reduce the flow on dows and other vessels uh, down into Yemen. That needs to continue and perhaps be increased. At the same time, we need to recognize that the Houthis have a finite number of weapons. They, they don't have an unlimited number of weapons. We have good ISR over Yemen. We can discover these weapons. We can strike these weapons. And it means more than just striking these weapons. It means striking the radar systems. It means striking the intelligence systems. It means striking the command posts. It means possibly striking the uh, Houthi leadership if that, is, if that is necessary. We have the ability to do it. What we need to do now is stick with it. And continue this and continue this until we achieve a result where the Houthis realize that their objective is not worth the possible pain and loss that we're going to inflict on them if they continue on this course. Yeah, and I think by the way, the people of Yemen would probably appreciate that. I'll also note that I think there is an effort to be mounted in Oman. Um, and that's something that I think probably we'll talk about at a different time here on, on the morning brief. Uh, but Oman has been a transit point for a lot of those weapons that have come into Yemen, and we know that that's been an issue for years. But let me ask you this. It, we, obviously, you know, we're, we're, our, our forces are, are under attack in other places, not just the Red Sea. We continue to see the Shiite militias attacking American bases in places like Iraq and Syria. What is the proper response to those militia attacks? I think you've laid out the strategy for the Houthis pretty well. Is it a similar strategy for these Shiite militias? Uh, in Iraq and Syria? So I think we need to be selective, but we need to be vigorous and aggressive in our response. All too often in the past, we have chosen to go, uh, we've chosen a, a response to an attack on us that was almost ephemeral in its potential effects on the adversary. You got to make it cost something. They, again, they understand this language in the region. We are perhaps the people who don't understand this language. And so we've let them get away with this for a long time. Had we acted earlier and more aggressively, both in Syria and Iraq, and also I would note in, uh, in, in, in the Red Sea, we might not be in the situation that we're in right now. But when a, when a tyrant or a totalitarian state or a terrorist regime goes unpunished, typically it's much more expensive to bring them to heel later than it is earlier in the process. And I think that's, if I were gonna criticize US policy, that's what I would criticize. We've waited too long and absorbed too much and given them too much self-confidence. And now it's gonna be a much harder task than it would have been several months ago. Got to get them early and often. Um, let me ask you about Israel's integration into CENCOM. That's when I had that uh, great opportunity to, to, to meet you and your staff back when you were with the Central Command. Israel integrated into CENCOM in 2021. It's working with these Arab states, some that recognize Israel, some that don't. How do you think that integration is working out so far? I think we got off to a great start in 2021. I think it has continued. Because look, here's the, here's the truth of the matter. The threat in the region is a fires threat from Iran. And by fires threat, I mean ballistic missiles, land attack cruise missiles, and drones. That's the threat. There's no threat of ground maneuver here. Iran has, is, is incapable of projecting an expeditionary force. And no one's thinking about invading Iran. So it becomes a fires war. And that is actually something that is easier to, uh, to sell to nations in the region because you're not giving up sovereignty. 
fighting in the air dimension and the space dimension is really about sharing information. It's building what we call a common operational picture. It's coming up with ways to pass warnings to your neighbors about Iranian nefarious behavior, about launching of missiles, drones, things like that. Israel is very, very good at this. And the nations in the, in the region recognize that. And they recognize the goodness that Israel brings to this defense of Iran. And when it's all said and done, Jonathan, I would argue that concern about Iran and particularly the concern of vulnerable infrastructures in Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait, Bahrain and UAE to Iranian fire attacks is the core defensive problem of the region. And the United States and Israel are uniquely positioned to assist nations in the region at getting better at sharing this information among themselves and at building an integrated defense architecture. And that may be sometime in the future uh, before that's complete. But that's been a dream of CENTCOM for a long time. Israel coming into the region sort of operationalized that. It began, it began to put the, uh, the bones, if you will, into this structure. We have a way to go. I'm not going to uh, you know, be uh, all rosy eyed here and say that, you know, what's going on uh, with Israel in Gaza hasn't perhaps been a setback at the political level with many of these Arab nations. But when it's all said and done, the threat from Iran is the principal threat. And everyone in the region knows that. Amen. I think that is crystal clear. Um, you mentioned earlier, just a, a minute ago, that uh, maybe there was uh, a delay in responding to some of these attacks. Uh, in light of the current conflict, I mean, was there anything other than maybe not responding earlier? Um, is, if you could go back and change anything about the years where you personally led CENCOM, let's not talk about your successor. Was there something that could have been done to prepare better for this moment? Well, I think going back to when I was in command, I think we had opportunity. We were still we were being struck as as we are now particularly in Syria, more so in Syria than, uh, than, than in Iraq. We had some opportunities to take strikes that might have, uh, might have stopped the flow of escalation that put us in our current place. We did not do that. And that's a political decision, not a military decision. Here's the analog. I'd go back to the spring of 2019 when we had clear evidence that Iran was preparing to attack us and our allies in the region. Clear evidence of that. And our response was half-hearted, uh, you know, they shot down an RQ-4 drone in the summer of 2019. We did not respond to that. A variety of other things occurred. And our response was mixed. We sent a mixed signal to Iran. We did some good things, and I don't want to minimize that, but we also sent a mixed signal. That led to Iranian escalation that ultimately ended in the strike of Qasim Soleimani in January of 2020. That could have taken a very different path had we acted earlier. Instead, we waited a long time, and we had to take drastic action that brought us to the brink, perhaps a theater war when we struck Soleimani. We could have avoided that had we been bolder and more aggressive in our earlier responses. All right, last question here for you. Um, I just wanna ask you about Israel's uh, security predicament. Right now, uh, the report suggests that um, the Israelis are being constrained by the United States to some extent or another in the war that I think is probably inevitable in Lebanon with Hezbollah. Do you think it's the right thing for the U.S. to be holding the Israelis back, or is it in the U.S. interest to just let them do this thing finally, given the threat that Hezbollah poses? Jonathan, so I, I probably take a slightly contrarian view. I'm not sure that war in Lebanon is desirable or necessary. Um, you know, Lebanese Hezbollah, first of all, is going to make a decision on war with Israel based on their own cold-eyed strategic calculation. They will not be prompted by Iran into this war. And one of, the, one of the interesting stories about the war to date is 
the war in Gaza has continued and how relatively silent both LH, Lebanese Hezbollah, and Iran have been against Israel proper. So we need to recognize that. And I realize that up in northern Israel, lots of people have been evacuated. There's a lot of low level back and forth. Isn't low level when you're um, receiving that fire. I recognize that. But nothing like the, the massive fire that Lebanese Hezbollah could bring into Israel. I think the reason LH is not doing that is, first of all, Nasrullah won't enter this war unless he sees the clear opportunity for a strategic gain for him. He doesn't see that yet. Israel is too strong. Israel is too capable. His position in Lebanon, in my view, and I'm just an outside observer, has been weakened by the economic tailspin the country's in, by the political gridlock that infects all levels of Lebanese life. It's a very different situation for LH than it was in, say, 2006, 2007. So LH is not necessarily interested in fighting Israel. Now, I recognize that Israel needs to get some kind of closure to get people back into their homes in northern Israel to return normality up there. I would not. I do not believe that fighting Lebanese Hezbollah on a large scale is the answer to that solution. It will be a large and costly war. A lot of Israelis are going to be hurt by that. A lot more Lebanese are going to be hurt by that. You might be able to effectively dismantle large chunks of LH. I doubt you're going to be able to remove them completely from life in Lebanon. So I think that's one I would be very cautious to proceed on if I were the Israelis. Okay. Well, General McKenzie, want to thank you. We'll leave it there. Thank you for joining us on the FDD Morning Brief. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, John. Okay, here's what my FDD colleagues are tracking today. My colleague Sinan Gidi is out with a new piece arguing that Israel should respond to the vitriol and Hamas support of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan by boycotting Turkish goods. He notes that Israeli punitive measures should probably also include preventing Turkey from gaining access to the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum. You know I like this approach. Follow the money. Hit them in the pocketbook. That's the game. My colleagues Brad Bowman and Bethnan Bentalablu are tracking the recent U.S. Navy seizure of a shipment of Iranian-made weapons that were smuggled from Iran to Houthi forces in Yemen. Brad and Bethnan are encouraging members of Congress to ask the administration and the Pentagon to ramp up interdictions and expand military pressure on the Houthis. Sounds more than reasonable to me. And finally, my colleague Emmanuel Otolenghi has a new piece calling on Western governments to be clear-eyed about Hezbollah's penetration of diaspora communities in Latin America. He notes Iran's dangerous strategy in the Western Hemisphere, and he notes uh, that law enforcement should begin aggressively targeting Hezbollah agents in these communities. It's not rocket science here, folks, but it needs to be said over and over. That's it for today. Read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FDD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at fdd.org slash invest. Thanks for tuning in today. I'll see you Monday for another episode of the FDD Morning Brief. I'll be joined by Avi Sakharov, one of the creators of the hit series, Fauda. He's got a great sense for showbiz, obviously, but wait until you hear him analyze events in the West Bank and Gaza. He's sharp. So I'll see you on Monday. And until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer signing off for FTD.